And would you turn in your Bibles to Matthew 5? We're continuing with the, the B attitudes. It's a, I love the B attitudes. The, it's been quite beautiful for us, I think, as a church, and even for me personally, just going through these and being challenged again with my attitude towards life and towards others, towards God, towards what's happening in our world. Um, and to have Scripture anchor our attitudes is a beautiful thing, isn't it? <laughs> um, because there's so many other things that can pull our, our emotions and our hearts in all kinds of directions. But we come to Scripture, and Jesus is settling His disciples. He's showing them where their heart should be, how their heart should be. Um, and we're speaking about hunger and thirst this morning. I wonder if we had to go around the room and say, what is the thing you hunger for the most in this season? What, are you, what, are your, what is your soul, your heart um, thirsty for in this season? I'm sure we'll come up with some very interesting answers in the room. But Jesus is speaking to His disciples in Matthew 5, verse, verse 6, I think it is, where it says, and blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. What an incredible promise. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He's speaking about our hearts, our souls, thirsting and hungering after righteousness. Now, I'm not sure for you, but if you hear the word righteousness, I'm, I'm sure that's got different meanings. And today we're going to look at what the meaning of righteous is. It's a beautiful biblical um, and scriptural um, word. And then he promises us that they that search and are hungerful after God's righteousness will receive or will be satisfied. Ecclesiastes 3 verse 11 says this, God has made everything beautiful in its time. As he also put eternity into man's mind, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Ecclesiastes 3 is saying God has placed eternity within us, and no matter how long we search, we will never fully, we will always be hunger, hungry. There will always be a thirst in us for eternity. It's like God has placed something in us, and until one day we, we are with Him in heaven and in eternity, we will always be hungry. We will always be unsatisfied on this planet. C.S. Lewis says this, If I find... If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Beautifully put by C.S. Lewis, isn't it? If I find myself always hungry, always thirsty in this world, the only proper conclusion is I was actually made for another world. We were made for eternity as God's children. Charles Spurgeon says this, Emptiness is written upon everything Till the heart comes to its Savior and its Lord. E emptiness, everything comes with an empty tag on it until the day we meet Christ and we are satisfied in Him. Two beautiful just modern or, or, or scholars writing around the emptiness and the hunger that exists. I think you can turn me down a little bit, Unati. Um, and Jeremiah 2, verse 12 to 13, you've heard us speak as a church of this scripture many times. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and hewed or made or, or, or dug out for themselves cisterns or wells for themselves, broken wells, wells that cannot hold water. Jeremiah is talking about Israel, God's people saying, you have turned away from God, but you've always dug wells. You've gone and drunk from sources that would never, ever satisfy you. And I love the illustration of a, a sieve trying to scoop water in a sieve and try and drink. It's impossible to kind of thing. And as long as we look and we find our satisfaction in places this world offers, we'll never ever be satisfied. And Jesus is speaking to this hunger and thirst in his disciples. St. Augustine said this um, about when he's in, a, in a prayer. He says, you made us for yourself 
and our heart is our heart is restless until it rests in you. Beautiful, but I, I've just modernized the English here because the thou's and the, the therefore's, I don't think we'll understand. You made us, he's, he's praying to God, he's saying, Lord, you made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until we rest in you, until we find our complete satisfaction, when our hunger and our thirst is satisfied in you, Jesus. Let's pray, and then we're going to unpack this righteousness, and we're going to look at what Christ calls us to. Jesus, thank you for your scripture. We acknowledge that our hearts are restless until we rest in you. We acknowledge that we are hungry and thirsty after you. We, we recognize that everything in this life comes with a tag, empty, <laughs> until we get to eternity. Until we find you and we find our Savior, everything is empty before us. And I pray this morning just that you would create in us a hunger and a thirst for righteousness, for the, for the, the, the thing that you promised that will satisfy us, that would cause us to feel full and satisfied and quench our thirst in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. So Jesus speaks to, to this in Matthew 5. What is righteousness? This righteousness that Jesus is speaking. It's so important for us as Christ followers to understand what this righteousness is. Like, do you know what this righteousness is? Or is it just a big word of living right that we just tick and we move on? I mean, Jesus mentions this five times in the sermon. And we're going to look at the instances. But the genius of the Beatitudes is if you read it, um, Jesus' preaching has got in, incredibly clear structure to it. Now, we think Jesus is just on the, on the side of the mountain. He's preaching. But if you look at it, it's actually incredibly um, clever in how he's structured it. The first and the last beatitude ends with the words, theirs is the kingdom. It's, he starts and he ends the beatitudes with, theirs is the kingdom, a promise to us. In verse 3, theirs is the kingdom. Then he speaks of poor in the spirit, mourn and meek. We've, we've spoken to about. Then he comes to our verse, verse 6 this morning, and he goes, hunger and thirst after righteousness is right smack. It's almost like a sandwich. You've got theirs is the kingdom, hunger and thirst after righteousness, and theirs is the kingdom, almost like a sandwich that, we, that he's giving to us. And then after the hunger and thirst after righteousness, he calls us to merciful, pure heart, peacemakers, and then he ends the Beatitudes again with theirs is the kingdom. So you can see the, the incredibly clear structure of it. And what's interesting is when Jesus speaks, he's speaking to our hearts. He's not, he's not giving us a, a job or a, a job list or to-do list. He's talking about attitudes of our hearts. How do we think? How do we feel about this? And when you look at the Beatitudes, he starts with verse 3, theirs is the kingdom. But he also then says, poor in spirit, mourn in the meek. And many, many of the commentators will say, as he starts with going, looking at our emptiness, he says, you're blessed when you are empty, when you are weak. And the interesting thing about our Christian faith is, we are not like the world. We actually at our st strongest, we are at our most spiritual, most alive in God, when we find our sp ourselves poor in spirit, when we find ourselves mourning, when we find ourselves in a place of meekness or humility and gentleness towards others. We're not like the world. That's not the world's list of how you should be. But Christ says, actually, in, in our faith as Christians, we're the opposite of the world. We, we actually find our strength in him when we go through seasons where, are, where we are poor in spirit, when we go through seasons where we are mourning and we are mourning the loss of dear loved ones, etc., etc. Or we find our place where we are meek, where we are humbled by our circumstances. I think you'd be a strange person in these days to walk around with your chin up, bragging and saying everything is fine, everything is good, and bragging about the life that you're living. I think COVID in, in, a, in, a, in a significant way has humbled us. It's caused us to look in a, and become gentle towards those around us. But then the sandwich, our verse this morning is the middle of the sandwich. 
those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. And then it, from emptiness, speaks to fullness. And he goes, this is how you are satisfied. How, this is what fullness in Christ looks like. It looks like merciful. It looks like the pure in heart. It is the peacemaker that is, is fullness. So you can see how Jesus goes from the emptiness, the brokenness, to the fullness. And says, no, this is where you can enjoy your satisfaction. Like the most, it's almost like the most amazing sandwich that Jesus made for us here. And we look at the emptiness and the brokenness of what we go through in the Beatitudes and say, you are still blessed. There are many guys that will preach differently. When you mourn, when you're lost, when you're going through brokenness, when you are humbled, they'll say, that's not a blessing. No, no. In, in Jesus' language, you are still blessed. You remain blessed in that season. Spiritually speaking, just, I don't know if you can, maybe I'm like that, but I'm sure you like that. In those seasons of humility, of brokenness, of, of loss, are the seasons my heart is most hungry for God, is most open to God, is most sensitive towards God. Israel, if you look at Israel's history over the Old Testament, the moments where everything was going well with Israel were the moments where they walked away from God. The moments where God handed them over to the enemies or allowed drought and, and famine, etc., they turned back to God. And our human hearts are very, very similar to these, these things. There's always this, this nervousness in a pastor's heart when, when everything in a person's life is going well. <laughs> you kind of know that, hey, it's so easy when everything in life is going well for you to walk away from God or from His church or from His people. And in some ways, in, our, our hearts need humbling to, to seek Him. It's, that's just the nature of the human heart. And Jesus speaks here of a, a righteousness that is far greater than the Pharisees. Now, later on in, in the same sermon, when he, when he ends off the sermon, he finishes with comparing his righteousness to those of the Pharisees. He said, I'm not calling you to, calling you to religious righteousness. I'm, I'm calling to you to something deeper. And I'm just going to go through a list of what, what Jesus calls him to. In, in chapter 7, when he, when he calls him to a righteousness that ex exceeds, is far greater than the religious leaders of the day. He says, in verse 21 and 27, he says, We must not, be, not only not kill, but more, we must not sustain anger against brothers, but seek peace. In verse 27 to 30, he says, We must not only commit adultery, but more, we must not even look at a person lustfully. In verse 31, verse 32, Jesus says, we should not con condone divorce just because it's the legal provision of the Old Testament. No, we should surpass the righteousness that makes peace with hardness of, of the heart and keep our covenant commitment and not marry those who don't. Verse 33 to verse 37, Jesus continues, he says, we should not only keep the oaths, but more, we should be the kind of people who do more than just the oath demands from us. Verse 38 verse to 42, when Jesus speaking, he says, We shall not only not poke out the eye because one of ours is, has poked out, no, we should also turn the other cheek. See how Jesus is comparing what the religious leaders of the day were saying, this is what you should do. They were giving laws and Jesus was going at the heart. He's saying, don't just make rules. No, no, actually, I'm, I'm after your heart as a Christ follower. As my disciples, I'm, I'm more interested in what's happening on your inside than what you're pretending to be on the outside. And clearly that Jesus here is, is his definition of righteousness, which is mercy, pure heart, and peacemaker. So you say, how do I live righteously? We live by showing mercy, by living with pure hearts before God, and by making peace with, with our fellow man. That's Jesus' recipe for what a righteous life looks like. Keller is very good on this, and he says, think of, think of people you consider fanatical, 
Now, we're living in days where there are lots of fanatical thinkers and, and attitudes and things out there, and I'm not going to get into all the controversies of today. Think of the people you consider fanatical. They must probably overbearing, self-righteous, opinionated, insensitive, and harsh. Why? It's not because they are too Christian. It's because they are not Christian enough. They are fanatical, fanatically zealous and courageous, but they are not fanatically humble, sensitive, loving, emphatic, forgiving, or understanding as Christ was. What strikes us as overly fanatical is actually a failure to be fully committed to Christ and his gospel. It's interesting what we consider fanatical. It's these radical oaks that make a big noise, that make statements, that are overbearing, they're self-righteous, they know, they've got all the answers. We consider that as, and, and Keller's saying, no, no, that's not fanatical enough. If you want to see real radical fellowship of Jesus, then let's look at the other list, the, the humility, the sensitivity towards one another, loving one another, being empathetic, forgiving and understanding as Christ was. He's saying that's radical. That's what the radical Christ looks like. Not the one with big opinions or the self-righteousness or saying, watch me, look me, we know best, we know, we have got more faith than you. No, the one that is humble, the one that is sensitive, the one that is caring and loving and able to forgive. I've often said this about the church, um, and, 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 and we've had the privilege of being in church um, since teenagers, is that the most radical thing, the most radical thing a church can be and do is to be a loving and forgiving community. If you look at the church today, if you look at society today, if you see how easy it is to write off people that don't believe in what you believe or agree with your sentiments, you just cancel them out and we don't have to, to hang around them. The most radical thing in this day and age is to find a person that's understanding, is caring, is loving, and forgives one another, forgives and continues in the friendship and relationship. Not forgives and then writes them off and go, no, no, for, live in that forgiveness. There's almost nothing more radical that we can experience as Christ follows than forgiving one another and loving one another. Not how much you know, not how often I get to church, not how much money I give to the church, no much, not, not how often I serve the church. No, it's in my heart that Christ is, is charging after and wants us to change and, and live by. What is the nature of this hunger and thirst that we look on? Have you noticed um, when, when, you, when you're younger, it doesn't take much to... To grab your imagination. It's easy to get you, your imagination or your juices flowing when you're young. Like um, I remember with my kids when they were small, we used to tell stories. When, when Keegan and, and, and our kids were two, three years old, you, you would tell a story and a line in the story would go something like, Jock the dog barked. Yes, and the kids would go, wow, like, oh, that's exciting. And they can imagine whatever. Can you imagine telling the same story to my 13-year-old Keegan? Jock the dog barked. He'd just look at me and go, okay, get, yeah, okay now dad, let's go. Where's the story heading? Where are we going? Can you imagine a 30-year-old Keegs, what he'd need to eat? So as we grow older, we almost become more and more aware that we need more to fascinate us. There's, we, we realize there's more than just Jock the dog barked. There's, what kind of dog was it? What kind of bark was it? Why was he barking? Where does the story end up, etc.? And we almost, as human beings, made to dream and imagine. There's the hunger and thirst in us for something far more significant than just the ordinary that we, we see. There's something more to this life. There's something more. We want some romance in our stories. We want some imagination. We want some twists and plot turns in our movies, in our lives. And we're hungry for that. And we are searching. The older we grow, the more it takes for us to get those juices going and to feel, hey, this... 
you know, like Claire hates it. We'll watch movies or, or rom-coms. And like I literally will, in the beginning of the movie, I will say to Claire, you know what's going to happen here. We can see where this is going. And Claire hates it because Claire loves just losing herself in the movie and watching it and pretends to be surprised when there's a plot twist and when everything doesn't work out. You're going, you know they're going to get back together at the airport right at the end. She goes, yeah, I know, but let me just enjoy the movie. But there's something that happens in our hearts where we almost dissatisfied with this world. We're thinking there must be more. I think it's, that's why COVID in this season, it's so easy for conspiracies and all kinds of theories to come to the fore because we all want answers and we, we're not satisfied with ordinary answers. We, we, we're not satisfied with what science says. No, no, there must be some big other theory going on. Or As human beings, we, we have that in us. It's, it's easy. That's why it's so easy for so many conspiracies and Facebook theories, etc., etc., to go on, I'll, watch, I'll show you, share a funny thing I saw this week. Someone sent me a, a, like a meme, like a photograph, with like, and they had how science does research or scientists do research, and they had a photograph of everybody in the, in the lab, like all the instruments and all the scientific kind of things, and underneath it, how you do research, and they had a guy sitting on a toilet on his, on his mobile phone um, scrolling through Facebook going, oh, now I'm going to make a decision that my life is going to, anyway. And it's, it is like that, isn't it? COVID's kind of like shown us that we all want other things and we want technicalities sometimes where it isn't. But we search also for identity. We're looking for who we are. We're asking the question, am I enough? Who am I? Am I worth anything? And Lisa um shared this week with me a, a great um, post with, with Paul Tripp, someone we both enjoy reading. And he speaks about, I searched for my identity. And I'm just going to read it for you. I think it's a bit of a poem or a, a writing that he did. I've searched for my identity in my success, but my failures get in the way. I've looked for identity in my possessions, but they age, break, or malfunction. I've sought identity in people, but everyone is flawed somehow. I've searched for identity in ministry, but the spirit gets in the way. I've searched for identity in knowledge, but I never know enough. I've, I've gotten my identity from strength, but weakness took it away. I've taken identity from abilities, but inability stole it from me. There is no place, no person, no experience, no success, no possession, no skill, no level of knowledge that can impart the security of identity the rest of, and the rest of meaning and purpose that everyone desires. So I've quit looking out and begun looking up. In you, Christ, I am loved. I am forgiven. I have eternal value. I have meaning and purpose. I have security and rest. I have understanding. I have moral direction. I have self-knowledge. I have peace of heart. You are in me. I am in you. This bond is enough for me. This bond is life, and it cannot be broken. Beautifully put by Paul Tripp here. Just the search in us that we as human beings will look everywhere for identity and how these things disappoint, lose it, etc., etc., and then we find it in Christ. We go, in Christ my solid rock I stand. On this rock only can I build my life. When we all realize that this world, this body, these people, these jobs, these possessions, this government will eventually fail all of us and fail us. We are also easy tempted to almost withdraw from this. If everything's going to fail me, why don't I just withdraw 
from this world? Why don't I just go live in my, my own little cluster? And COVID, in, in some ways, has given us an out. It's, it's good to be isolated. Let's just stay away from people. Let's just stay away from people that aren't like us. And so the, the biggest danger for the church coming out of COVID is that this very thing that we found, the disappointment in almost everything in life, disappoints, causes us to withdraw from one another and from the world where we're actually happy to stay at home. We don't want to, why must I mess, I've come up with my set of beliefs, with my set of behaviors that I'm comfortable with. Why mess with other people or get around with other people, etc.? And many church leaders have said the biggest fight that we're going to face going forward out of past, by God's grace, other side COVID, is showing people again the value of community. Why bother getting messy and, and, and sitting with, next to people that we don't know, we don't necessarily even have much in common because there's a temptation to to isolate and withdraw and say no no i'm just going to do my own thing here and COVID has given many many of us the excuse or the reason to do that but it's not biblical it's not what christ calls us to and then there's a little warning here be careful you won't find your satisfaction in the woods in an island it's been amazing as COVID's continued more, more, more people will say, just give me a cabin in the woods far away from any people in society. I'm going to go back into farming. In East London, even in East London, I've got many friends that have decided to move out to the East Coast Resort where I just want to get out of town, away from people. This gives us three ways, gives us three ways to, to live righteous lives before Him. One, by showing mercy towards one another. Two, by living pure-heartedly before God, being pure in our motives before God, being honest before God with who we and what we are. And lastly, trying to make or seek to make peace amongst men. We are, are talking to church leaders constantly, and guys are finding churches being ripped apart during the season with different philosophies, different attitudes, different views. You've got the vaxxers and the anti-vaxxers. Then you've got the, those that, that believe all kinds of theories around COVID, but also what should the church be doing? What should the church not be doing? Should we, we be wearing masks? Should we not be wearing masks? Should we be singing? Should we not be singing? And, and so what happens in seasons like this is we, we polarize, and what Jesus calls us is to make peace. Find the peacemaker. Be the peacemaker in those things. This is not a time for the church. If we want to live righteously, make peace with one another. Give each other room where it's, where it's, where it's fine to give room to, to opinions, but don't write off people that don't believe in what you believe or or, or think of them less spiritually because they have a, a shared different opinion to you. And then the Sermon on the Mount ends with verse 7 in chapter 7, 22 to 23. And this is interesting because listen to how the sermon ends. <laughs> this is quite, quite radical. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of the Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did, not the, did, did, not the, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, your work, you, you workers of lawlessness. And what's happening here is it seems spiritual. The things that they were busy doing were, seemed spiritual, seemed religious, seemed quite powerful. And they thought they knew him or that Jesus knew them, knew them but they're discovering that they did not know him and he did not know them. And they were strangers. Why were they strangers? They were strangers because they placed all their, 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 their identity and their security in their own religious works. I go to church. 
I give my money, I read my Bible, I say my prayer every day, I, I witness or I tell people about Jesus, or they perform all these things, but their hearts weren't changed. Jesus is clearly here in the Beatitudes going after our hearts, not just our actions. He's more interested in what's happening in your heart than what's happening with your, with your hands. They were religious, they went to church, performed all these duties, but they were not satisfied and they could never be satisfied. They did not pursue his righteousness, but rather religious duties. And it's so easy for you and I to fall into this trap where we just tick the religious boxes, but our hearts have been left behind, where we don't pursue righteousness. And then we wonder, after years of years of, of pursuing all these religious duties, why are we not happy? Why are we left dry and hungry in, in, in church? And then we look at the church, we go, maybe the church should play better worship music, we'll feel more satisfied. Or maybe if the preacher preached better, we'll, we'll feel more satisfied. Or maybe if I just go to, if I give more money, I'll be more satisfied. No. Maybe if we pursue righteous living before Christ, we'll, we'll find our satisfaction. Just like Jesus promised. Maybe when we, when, we, when we show mercy, we deliberately go out of our way to show mercy to our fellow human beings. We'll experience some satisfaction and some joy. Maybe when we seek to make peace, instead of jumping into every argument that there is, we'll enjoy and find satisfaction. Maybe when we, when we take the, the step of living a pure life before Christ, when we say no to sin, when we say no to temptation, maybe then, I'm saying maybe Christ, there's no maybe in Jesus' sentence. He promises you will be satisfied if you pursue these things. So let's pursue, John Piper says this, he says, the greatest tales of the future will be written by those committed to one thing, the righteousness of God. The greatest church tales, the, the greatest tales in our city will be written by those not pursuing all the other things, not pursuing religious works, but those pursuing the righteousness of God. Those pursuing, give yourself, give everything you have. Get passionate about sowing mercy into your neighbors. Get passionate. It's a, it is a spiritual act when you show mercy and kindness to your mercy, to your, to your neighbor. It has been incredible during this season to hear how our church has shown mercy and grace to people in the church, but also outside of the church. It is warming, it's heartwarming as a pastor when you hear people care and show mercy to others. It, it shows that there's something of Jesus in us, that, that we are pursuing Him and not just the religious acts. Get passionate about living purely, holy before God. Fight sin, kill sin, or sin be killing you, is what the old preachers used to say. In our lives, do not think just because I'm a Christian, I'm going to heaven, that I don't have sin to fight, that I don't have temptation or lust to fight in my life. Fight sin or it will be, it will be taking you down. And get passionate about that. And sometimes getting passionate about fighting sin is having really honest conversations with people that you trust and you love and that love Jesus. Say, hey, I'm struggling. Will you fight this sin with me? I think we need more of that in the church today. It's, it's almost, for me as a pastor, I think we don't speak enough of how we fight sin. We all, put, we all think we're all holy and we don't have sin. We've got lots to go through and still to fight. And lastly, get passionate about making peace. Get as passionate as defending your point of view on a topic in making peace than defending your point of view. Get as passionate about making peace with your brother and your sister as you are about Defending your point of view. Or maybe it's time to put your point of view aside to live in peace with your brother and your sister. I think there's a bit of that needed.